I remember back in the, the late 80s when I was really just getting started and people were really beginning to know my name. I once had a teacher said to me that she used to think of romances as being just, you know, trashy novels. And then she started reading them. And she said, you know, I realized that my girls in school, these are important books for them to read because because the stories were always pretty much middle class and higher, um, and because there was always a happy ending, she said, this is their first introduction to what healthy man-women relationships could be like. You know, the stories could be perceived as being a little bit of a fantasy, but she said, these are pretty much on target. This is what we want. This is what we want in a relationship, a guy who's going to respect you, a guy who's going to make you laugh, who's going to talk to you, who's not going to, you know, play you. Um, and so if they're 14, 15, 16 years old and they're reading these books, this is a pretty good start on what relationships could be like. That was the voice of Sandra Kitt, one of the first authors for Harlequin American under the new line formed by Vivian Stevens and the first African-American author to write for Harlequin. We are pretty excited to share what comes from this conversation. We're going to talk a lot about category romance and its evolution and some amazing stories. Yeah, some great stories. Welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. And I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And this is Sandra Kitt. (laughs) All right. So thank you so much for joining us. We are really thrilled to have you. Um, I know I told Jen right before we started that I had a little taste of I know some of your stories because we've had lunch together. (laughs) Oh, Uh, yes. Great fun. Great fun. And maybe All you New Yorkers making me jealous. I know. know. Now that we're all getting vaccinated, it might actually happen again. Yeah, I I hope so. Exactly. I hope so. (laughs) Um, So, Sandra, let's start at the beginning. How did you become a writer? Well, I guess I first have to say that I was not looking to become a writer. Um, When this all happened to me, I was very happy in a professional career as an astronomy librarian at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And uh, it was. I love astronomy (laughs) and the moon. I'm so excited right now. That is like the coolest (laughs) job. It was was a very, very cool job. And working at the museum was just great fun. I met the most amazing people there, you know, beginning with Isaac Asimov, with whom I became very good friends. Sure. Him and his wife and illustrated two books for him. Wow. And uh, following through, you know, the whole astronaut era, being able to meet them up until and even now, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, with whom I worked for almost 20 years before he went off to become a rock star. (laughs) And and I continued doing women's fiction and romances. So it was a wonderful career. And actually what happened was it was very instantaneous and haphazard, really. I got an idea one day for uh, a story. I'd never written a story before, but, you know, going through school, I wrote a lot of poetry and, and little romantic scenes. I wouldn't call them stories. And I got this idea for a story which came to me in my head 
fully, fully developed in about five minutes. And um, I went home that evening after work and sat down and began writing. I had no idea what I was doing. I wasn't sure what the format of a book was supposed to be like. And I wrote this story in about six weeks and it was over a hundred thousand words. So that tells you how much it just absolutely flowed out of me. Amazing. And, um, and to amazing. this day, to this day, I've always, I still believe that was the book that I was meant to write. And ultimately it was published as The Color of Love. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my seminal book. That's the one that I'm most known for. That's the one that continues to sell. But that wasn't the first book that you published, right? That wasn't the first book that I published. It was, it was the, the first, first book, book you wrote. Walk the us very through first book I wrote. how that well, happens. How it got from the first book to the first published <laughs> book. Well, um, you know, I, I had no expectations of getting published. I, I really wrote the book for myself. I'd never seen a story like the Color of Love. That was not the, the working title. It was something else at the time. For everyone, The Color of Love is about a, pol- a white police officer and a black heroine. Which remains which remains so topical even right. today. Right. Um, yeah, it, it did have a white police officer. The story took place in New York, where I was born and raised. And the heroine was an African-American book designer who worked in publishing. Uh, they met in a very kind of strange, fortuitous way, uh, purely happenstance again. Um, and because of the way they met, he was, she sort of came to his aid one morning when she found them outside of her house. He returned six weeks later to thank her. Mm. And he was both stunned that he had done that, and so was she. But it began a friendship. And, of course, ultimately what happened with the friendship, once they got over their qualms about being interested in someone of another race, they began to fall in love. And it's, um, you know, it's a story about how they overcame all of the obstacles of which there were many in order for them to commit to their love and, and to show each other how much they, they really believed in each other and loved each other. Um, I'm very proud of that book. Um, I thought what I wanted to do, um, besides write an interracial story, because I was looking at the world I lived in, mm-hmm. in New York, in the country, and we don't talk about it, but it's not as if interracial couples have you know, never existed before. But I wanted to not only um, see if I could write a story that was credible about an interracial relationship, I decided to really throw in the kitchen sink by making the hero a cop. Yeah. Because yeah. then, as now... The relationship between law enforcement and, uh, you know, communities with people of color has always been tenuous, has always been very, very rocky. So I wanted to see if I could write a story that the readers would believe, that they would believe that this was even possible. And um, I think I succeeded just in the the history of, of the story itself and where it is even now in the history of romances and women's fiction. Yeah, you came out of the gate swinging for the fences. I did. Around us, what's the year that we're talking about at this point? I began writing that story and finishing it in 1980. Okay. So I'm also giving away my age. That's okay. (laughs) Barely even born. Barely even born. That's my baby. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Love you. Love you. But it wasn't published until... It was 15 years. 1995, right? It was 15 years before I could get it published. And that's not to say I didn't circulate it among all of the publishing houses. And um, what I consistently got back as as feedback from the editors is that 
this is a really well-written book. It's really, really interesting. And I don't think we can publish it. And they would say, we just don't know what we would do with it because it's such a taboo subject. And that was the word they used, Mm. taboo, because it was this whole interracial thing. You know, we kind of take it for granted now in the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah. But in, in 1980, it was not done. And, you know, I, you know, you should see if there are any other interracial stories around that era. And they're, uh, there really aren't. I can only think of one, but it wasn't considered a um, romance. It was considered commercial fiction and it had a different kind of theme. Right. Yeah. Well, what they had in the 80s were those awful, awful romances with like Native American men in historicals. My feeling about them doing the, publishing them about um, with Native American heroes or um, using Arab sheiks mm-hmm. and, and, right. and all that, you know, it was just an excuse to write about someone who was of color and they, you know, so it became exotic. Right. You know, you write about Native American falling in love or with a, a, a white woman. It was always a white woman. Um, you know, you can, it's, it's all kinds of things. It's exploring an issue that no one ever talked about. So if you write about it in terms of historic fiction, then it's a little bit more acceptable rather than placing it in the 20th or now the 21st century. If you say, this is a story that took place in the 1800s. It's kind of like acceptable right. because it was the past. Um, so my feeling is that I don't think it was a, a deliberate intent, but the way I read it is that this was a way of exploring the whole issue of interracial romances by setting the story, first of all, in historical period mm-hmm. and then using other um other races that were still kind of exotic because we really didn't know a lot about them, including our own Native Americans, you know, or, you know, the Arab uh, countries or people who are Spanish, you know, um, or people who are South Asian, that kind of thing. But um, I just went for the jugular. I just said, I'm going to set this in America and let's see where the chips. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Let's see where the chips fall. Okay. So you have the color of love. Right, which is not titled that at the time, but whatever you have. No, I think it was. I think the the working title originally was "Through the Eyes of Love," and then at a at a second revision, writing through it, I named it "Barriers." Then it segues. The final title was "The Color of Love," and that was just the perfect title for it. It really spoke very specifically about what you know what the book is about. Um, But you know, once I finished it, I put it aside because, as I said. I was writing for myself. Mm -hmm. I was writing stories that I had not seen in the industry, in the marketplace, in the bookstores. And the story came to me and said, this is a great story. You know, someone, the people would like to read this. So I wrote a second book and I finished it. And then I wrote a third book (laughs) and I finished it. And it wasn't until I finished that third book that I realized because I had so many ideas coming to me so fast I said, you know, maybe some of this is publishable. Now, at the time, 1981, Harlequin um, had decided to start a new romance line where the stories were set completely in America because, you know, they're a Canadian company. And, um, and they then went on the look for American writers to write the American stories because, of course, we, we sort of knew our own history. Um, and so I, I just happened to come across this article in the New York Times, and they talked about Vivian Stevens, who they had recently hired to head up the new New York office for this Harlequin um, imprint. 
And this was um, Harlequin American Romance for everybody. That became the Harlequin American Romance, exactly. So um, I, being a librarian, I dug up the the number for the New York office. And when I called, I got Vivian on the phone. I was totally stunned. Amazing. You know, but I I didn't know any better. I was so innocent and naive about publishing and people and who they were and how this worked. She answered the phone. I introduced myself and said, I just read about you in the New York Times and I see you're looking for writers. I said, I don't really know anything about publishing, but I have written three books and I'm thinking perhaps one of them might interest you for your new line. And she said, well, why don't you come on in and, and meet with me? We'll sit down and have a talk. Perfect. And I'm thinking, all right, you know, this, this is already sounding good. Were you at the time, you were writing romances, obviously. Were you? No. You were not? No, you weren't. No, I was not writing romances. I was writing, I always believed that my stories were a lot bigger in scope and complexity than the romances that I had been reading. Were you reading them too? Oh my goodness. I've been reading them since junior high school, but they weren't called romances in those era days. They were called um, Gothic romances because they were all written about England. Mm-hmm. They were all historicals. Then you get to the Boones and uh, Mills and Boone stories from Harlequin, where the stories then began to become more contemporary, but they were still all white characters, all in mm-hmm. Europe. You know, there was nothing about America in them at all. And you were writing something different. And I was writing totally different. I mean, you, I mean, you've, you've read, if you've read The Color of Love, you, you know how complex that story is. And it's like two or three subplots in it, mm-hmm. you know, and there's also a second kind of romance going on. So I knew that what I was writing was bigger, deeper, more complex and longer in terms of mm. the writing, you know, word very, count. very complex word count. Which is a big piece I, of this at the time. I mean, they, like these categories have a very specific word count or no. At exactly. But I didn't know that. Right, exactly. I, I, I didn't know that. I simply wrote the book, you know, and I figured that um, I knew that it was long, but I really hadn't paid much attention to the fact that my books were significantly, sometimes twice as long as the typical category right. or series right. romance. I mean, I just... You know, no. in my in one ear and out the other. So Vivian had me come into her office and it was on Second Avenue. I remember Second Avenue between 42nd and 41st Street. And her office was so new, she had no furniture. <laughs> she didn't have a secretary. There was no receptionist. There was just Vivian. And so we we went into her office and sat down and it was an amazing conversation because I said, you know, I don't, um, this is what I'm doing. I've written these three books. I don't know anything about publishing. So in two hours, she met with me for two hours and gave me a quick tutorial on what she was looking for, what she wanted to see in romance, yada, yada, yada. At the end of the two hours, she said, I understand you, you said that you've written three books. And I said, yeah. She said, why don't you send me two? Just pick the two of the three that you thought were really, you know, different or strong or whatever, send them to me and let me take a look at them. So believe me, the next day, <laughs> I bet. The, the manuscripts <laughs> were in the mail and she called me 10 days later to say, I'm buying both books. And wow. the two books that she bought was a black romance, which was Adam and Eva. Mm-hmm. And I gave her a story where the main characters were white but had secondary black characters and that became the rights of spring. Mm-hmm. And that was the very, very first book that she published, but both books came out in uh, 1984. 
So that's how I got started. And basically, once those two books came out, I was off to the races. I was off and running. Um, everything I wrote after that for many, many years always got published. But just to show you how much I didn't know about the industry, I didn't know that I could have written a proposal <laughs> or done just three chapters, <laughs> submit them to a publisher or an editor, and then they would decide that they want it and put me on the contract. I would write the whole book because <laughs> I, did, I didn't know any better. I wrote the whole book. I was, in those days, a pretty fast writer. I was doing them in about three months. And then so I would show them to an editor at Harlequin, and they'd say, oh, we want this. And they would buy it, and that would be that. I think I'd written my 10th book before someone said to me, you know, you don't really have to write the whole book right away. <laughs> Ten seriously you know really were they keeping this a secret so anyway um I was off and running um I felt so fortunate I felt that wow this is happening really really quickly but even as I began to work with Vivian on Adam and Eva in particular I began to get a sense of how certain people in the industry were looking at me as a writer and looking at my stories. When she bought um, Adam and Eva, she told me that the guys, and they were all guys at the time up in Canada, didn't want her to buy the manuscript. And they wanted her to figure out how to reject it, turn it back to me, and get the advance back. Because the and characters they, were African-American. Because the characters were all Black. They were all African-Americans. And they they didn't want to deal with how their white readership, which was substantial, was going to respond. Because don't forget, at the time, Harlequin's book came out as a subscription series. You joined you the subscription. Right. And you got four books every month. And you got whatever you got. That's what you got. Right. So they were already anticipating that there'd be a lot of blowback if one month one of the books had Black characters on the cover. And to uh, Vivian's credit, and I give her a lot of credit for this, she told them, no, we're going to put this book through and we're going to see what happens. One of the things she said to me when I met with her was, my goal is to change the way we perceive romances in this country. She said, I can't do anything about the rest of the world, but I want the books to reflect the way America looks. And so she, you know, she was actively looking for African-American writers at the time who would sort of break that, that wall and begin to come in. And this is where Elsa Washington um, comes into the story. I did not know Elsa before meeting Vivian. She was, uh, Elsie and, and Vivian were actually very good friends. You know, let's face it, there weren't very many African-Americans in the field at all, and they all knew each other. They all <laughs> knew each other. They're very emotionally and psychologically supportive of what they had to go through in order to break into this career. Maybe you could give listeners a overview of who Elsie is and why she's important. So um, Elsa Washington at the time was a journalist. Hmm. She was writing, uh, working freelance, doing articles. She wrote quite a bit for uh, Essence magazine. Um, I think that she was a regular columnist for a while. Um, and so what Vivian did was to approach Elsa because Elsa was a writer mm -hmm. and she said to her, I want you to write a book because I'm looking to uh, break in and open up this field to black writers. We know that there are a lot of talented black writers out there. We just have to find them. 
So she asked Elsa if she would write a book. And, um, and uh, Vivian worked very, very closely with Elsie on the book because as Elsie told me maybe a year or two later after the book came out, which was called Entwined Destinies, uh, and she wrote under the name of Rosalind Well, that was her pseudonym, she said it was really, really, really difficult for her to write the book because she says, I'm not a novelist. She mm. says, I, I write freelance, I write nonfiction, I write about beauty, I, wrote, I write about all kinds of things, but I don't write romances. So Vivian had to really hold her hand mm. through the project. They talked about the story settings. Vivian explained what she wanted in a romance, what the romance should be about. Elsie came up with characters in a setting. And the, they kind of, uh, um, Vivian was kind of like a guidance for her through the process until the book was done. And that book uh, came out not as a Harlequin American romance book. It came out under the Candlelight series, right. which was a double day end print, but it was the first one of, by a black writer that Candlelight had ever done. And subsequently was legitimately the very first black romance. Mm -hmm. um, so in that regard, Elsie uh, you know, came before me. Uh, in terms of being the first in that category. I was the first with the American Romance line. As a matter of fact, I think Rites of Spring was number 13, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the whole line of books. And then again, as I said, later that year, 1984, came Adam and Eva. But once Elsa finished that book, she, she couldn't be persuaded to write another one. Mm -hmm. She said she found it very difficult because it wasn't her natural forte. Right. Mm -hmm. you know, she was a lovely, lovely lady, very gentle, very sweet, very smart, very kind. I liked her a lot. And, um, you know, down the road a few years when I learned that she had died of cancer, there was an obituary in the New York Times for her. Um, I was stunned. I thought, she, oh, my goodness, she's so young. <laughs> she, what yeah. do you mean she's dead? But, you know, she was gone. But um, she did, I feel, make leave a place in history in the genre even though we, a lot of people, most people apparently don't know who she is or know anything about her. Um, there's not a lot written about her either. Um, but I, I did have an opportunity to know her a little bit for about a two or three year period. And I'm very happy for that. When Harlequin American Romance as a series, what, what's your understanding? Was this like Harlequin had this idea and they found Vivian or did Vivian pitch it as like a, we need an American romance line. Do you have any sense of like that relationship between the, the that line being founded? I have a sense that Vivian did not approach them. I think that they came to her. Okay. You have to remember that during the era, Harlequin wow. was it. That was they it. They were the premier and only romance line that right. was out there. They were doing extremely well worldwide. And their own uh, demographics and, and focus groups showed that American women readers read huge numbers of the Harlequin books. And it was always known that it was a Canadian company. I don't think the readers really paid much attention to the fact that it was a Canadian company. Um, they just, you know, they liked the genre. Sure. And I think it was um, the uh, the powers that be in, in Canada decided, wow, the, you know, these are huge numbers from the American readers. Maybe what we should do is start a whole Cater other line, right, that's that not only caters to the American reader, but... Um, is set the story, you know, they, otherwise the stories had never been set in America. 
the earlier Harlequin books had never been. So they very smartly and very innovatively decided, let's start a new line set in America, all the stories, and we'll find American writers to write the American stories. They contacted Vivian and they hired her away from Candlelight because she was so hugely, really successful in developing the Candlelight series. And a lot of people don't know this either. She was the first editor to find Sandra Brown. Right, right. She was the first one to find Barbara Delinsky. Jane yeah. Ann Krantz all came through the Candlelight series, which Vivian was the editor of. Mm-hmm. So they looked at her record, looked at her numbers and say, well, that we have to have her because she clearly knows what she was doing. And I once said to Vivian, after talking to her and learning a little bit more about her, I always thought that she had the purest, very clear sense of what a quote unquote romance was and what it should be and what it should be about and what women wanted to read. And um, I think that the genre has certainly changed in, you know, since the 1980s, late 1970s. And to the point where I think we almost have to redefine romance um, because we, what we read today in romance is not what I had considered romance when I came into the industry. And, um, and you know, what appeals to me as a women's fiction romance reader is not like any of the books that I really see coming out today, which is fine. Change happens. Change is natural. But I think that with change, you have to really revisit what it is you're writing. Mm-hmm. And and what was what is the mission statement, so to be, uh, so to uh, to speak, of the stories? You know, so that's, uh, what is it you're trying to come accomplish? That's really fascinating. Could you talk? Could you talk a little more about that? Are you are you willing to talk a little more about that with us? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, no, because Je- I mean, yeah, we certainly have had this conversation yeah. a lot. That the the genre is always evolving, and where is it going now? So, what are you thinking? Okay, so um, I guess I have to kind of go back a little bit to when I began reading them in junior high school and they were gothic (laughs) novels. What appealed to me about the stories was the relationship between the he and the she. Mm -hmm. How did they actually come together? What drew them together? Now, the stories, the gothic novels per se, always had an element of suspense about it Mm -hmm. and and always damsel in distress being saved by this you know, hunky hero who was also incredibly wealthy. And I was fascinated by that. But, you know, 13, 14 years old, what do we know about love or romance? Then I sort of um, uh, progressed from that to reading some of the Harlequin books. And and those, uh, not uh, yeah, the Harlequin books. And those appealed to me because they were contemporary stories, even though they were, you know, still set in Europe or set in Canada, they appealed to me because they were contemporary, which is something I could really relate to. Then um, we started publishing books by uh, historical novels, primarily by people like Joanna Lindsay, mm-hmm. um, you know, and Kathleen Woodowis, who was one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. I just loved her work. And um, see, it was another writer that I really liked a lot. Georgette Hare. Sure. Just amazing. And what I liked about their books were that they were, they were, they had a level of intelligence. They weren't just stories about he meets her, she meets him, they fall in love, they argue, they separate, they come back together, and it's the end of the book. Her stories, these stories were very well-developed characters, real sense of history, uh, particularly Georgette Hare. I mean, it's, and her books had very subtle humor that just made me laugh all the time. 
And so I, I, when I started thinking about the stories that I really liked and appealed to me, they were the stories that were, had a very strong sense of setting. The characters were very well drawn and consistent. You know, you understood their motivation. And maybe I was thinking a little bit too um, intellectually at the time about them, but th that's the kind of thing that appealed to me. And when the characters fell in love, you believed it. And you believed why they were falling in love. For me, romance at the time, and, and don't forget, this was before we had introduced you know, con um, uh, consummation in, in the stories. And there was the sex between the sheets and all of that. It was all about the emotions. It was all about the, that wonderful, right, the wonderful sense you got of meeting someone that you're really attracted to, but he's interesting and, um, you know, he's got a sense of humor or he's really smart. Whatever the case may be, I liked getting back to that primary instant when the attraction clicked and the story takes off from there. And so it's really about the emotion. It's about uh, uh, gaining trust. It's about um, overcoming doubts and taking chance and risks. So my stories have always been very emotional because that's what appealed to me. Um, what I think began to happen as the, the stories became, the envelope was pushed and writers were able to do a little bit more. Then you brought in the sexuality issue. And don't forget, we went through that whole period where we were accused by critics of just writing soft mommy porn. You know, still because happens, of the sex. right? <laughs> and it still happens occasionally. And of course, the people who criticize it don't understand what the romances are all about anyway. Right. Or they know that it's about the, the feelings and emotions that go into people falling in love. It's not about the act of sex. Um, it, it's much more than that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I sort of began to feel this is what I'm interested in when I read a book about relationships. It's a, really the core of it is about the relationship. The story is something else that kind of um, uh, advances the, the relationship between the characters and pushes it forward. But it all comes down to emotion. Mm -hmm. It all comes down to what do they feel and believe about each other in their hearts and how can they nurture it and make it something that's permanent and you have a happy ending. Um, I think what's happened is once we began to allow sexuality into the stories, the envelope began to be pushed even further. And that became, it, it seemed to be, that became much more of a focus in the story. And there were a lot of readers who were really into that. You know, they just wanted to get right to it mm -hmm. and find out what they were doing in bed together. And so the emotional part of it began to take a back seat. Um, and while I understand the fascination and appeal to the sexual part of it, because let's face it, if it's well-written, you're going to get hot, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, and they, you know, I once heard a, re a reader, a writer say that if you don't get turned on writing your own love scenes and you're not doing it right. <laughs> so, you know, so that's, that's all good and fine. And it's part of, um, the relationship, part of human nature, part of procreation, part of all of that. But I don't think we can get away from the fundamentals, which is the relationship. Feelings. What are they feeling about Feelings. each other? And I, I really kind of feel that um, not only have we kind of gotten away from that basis, that foundation for the stories, I don't think we spend enough time talking about what does it mean 
when you're asking how do they feel about each other. You know, when I when I write a love scene, I, I use I, the thesaurus is my favorite writing tool because I find <laughs> words to describe feelings because I want to feel what she's feeling, the heroine, yeah. when a guy touches her, when he suddenly puts his hand on the back of her neck or runs his hand down her arms or turns her to face him and they're looking into each other's eyes. It doesn't always come down to sex. It comes down to that visceral intimacy, which is, which is hard to describe the intimacy. Thank you. And so I do think that, um, we need to, we need to look at romances where they are now and heaven knows where they're going to be in five or 10 years. If you keep pushing the envelope back, I wonder if at some point we begin to circle back to what they used to be and what really got the audience to begin with what what drew them in to begin with because they the stories appeal to readers before the sex was introduced mm-hmm. so you don't necessarily need that and you don't have to call it inspirational or sweet romance just because right. it doesn't have sex it all comes down to emotion so i do think we have you know we really need to re- revisit that and and re you know decide what we're going to do about it um but after I was, I only knew Vivian as an editor for about 18 months. She was only with Harlequin for about 18 months. And, um, and then she left. Um, I'm not sure if she left or if they let her go, but, um, but she wasn't there anymore. And so I was turned over to one of the other editors in the company and continued to write for them for the next nine years. And what was interesting about them giving me such a hard time about writing stories with black characters is that I eventually got an editor in 1993, I believe, 94, who they were doing an anthology about Thanksgiving and it was called Friends, Families and Lovers. And they asked me to do one of the stories in which the couple was interracial. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, really? You're like, I have a book for you. I have a book for you. Let me tell you where I was 15 years ago, right? right. No, I didn't even think to show them um, uh, The Color of Love. I wrote another story for them. It would be called Love is Thanks Enough. Um, And it was a Thanksgiving theme. But I was just so stunned that out of the blue, 10 years later, they're now Mm -hmm. coming around to asking me to do something that's new Mm -hmm. and that's different. And the one thing I I will give to Harlequin is that they they were always able to come up with innovative new imprints. But Sandra... In that interim period, after Vivian left and until that Thanksgiving short, it sounds like you were writing books about two white people falling in love, right? I was, and I got a lot of a lot of flack about that from the black readers. Um, was that because, because they the publishers basically said you had to? No, no, no. They didn't. The publishers had nothing other than not accepting a story if I submitted it with black Ah, characters. They really didn't tell me what I should write. I kind of figured (laughs) it out. quietly told you what you (laughs) should write. They very, (laughs) very nonverbal. Very, very nonverbal. You know, um, which was... You were like, it's a little math. Let me put two and two together. (laughs) Yeah, I think I can figure this out. Um, No. um, What happened was I had always considered myself somewhat of a switch hitter as a writer. And that means... I write the story as they come to me. Mm-hmm. And with, with um, The Color of Love, the story came to me as an interracial story. 
Uh, the next book that I wrote that came out after that was called Significant Others. This is when I was writing for Penguin Putnam. And that was a story about an African-American woman who was so fair she could pass for white. Mm. But she didn't. She knew she was African-American. She claimed it. This is what I am. But being the way people perceived her because of the way she looked complicated her love life. Mm-hmm. So she was always having these mixed signals and messages coming to her from men that she met, whether it was a black man or a white man. And, you know, she wasn't looking for either. It's just she was who she was and she had to deal with it. So I was always mixing up the genre and trying to write things that no one else had been writing about. You know, then there was um, Between Friends in which these, these two girls who were childhood friends one was black and one was white. And um, they grew up together in the same community. And when the white woman um, had a child, she, uh, the black friend became the godmother to the white child. But then the hero was someone who had saved the heroine, who was African-American, when they were teenagers, when she was about to be raped. And he mm. literally saved her life. Then he goes off and lives his life and she's living hers. When he is in, reintroduced to the community, then there is competition between the two girls over the guy <laughs> who is white. You know, so the sto- my stories, I, you know, I was raised in New York, which is arguably one of the most integrated cities in the universe. Um, and, and this is the world I've always known. I've always been part of multi-mixed community since the time I was in elementary school, junior high school. Some of the friends that I met in junior high school are my friends today. Mm -hmm. And they are Hispanic, they're Asian, they're Jewish, they're (laughs) one guy is Hungarian, you know, he's white. (laughs) So this is not unusual to me. I looked at the world that I lived in in New York and that's where I began to draw on my stories because I didn't ever see anything written about the reality of the of the right. city, let alone the country, which was beginning to change. The country was beginning to move towards a level of diversity that um, was noticeable. And all of my stories looked towards the future. And that's why I write contemporary stories rather than historical. I'm interested in the times we're living in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because in, in writing about where we are now, I'm absolutely preparing for the future and where we're going in the future. So did the Thanksgiving anthology lead you to get on the radar of, um, oh, what was his name? Who founded Arabesque? Um, oh, uh, Walter Zacharias. Walter, thank you. Sorry. Right. Another I was like, sweetie. Zachary, and then I was like, no, that's not right. It's Zachary. <laughs> you were okay. close. You were very close. Um, he was a sweetheart. Um, but Walter was one of the few people who put his money where his mouth was. Mm -hmm. He understood that the industry was changing. He understood that the genre was uh, was changing. And we've had talks about it. He'd say, I don't understand why other publishers don't realize that there's a whole market out there Mm -hmm. that they've been ignoring just because (laughs) the readers may all be black. He said, you know, give them what they want and then you get what you want, which is that you sell more books and you make more money. So he started Arabesque, it was actually called Pinnacle, um, Arabesque under the Pinnacle imprint, um, because he said, I think it's time. I think that if we put a line out there where the target audience is going to be African-American, he says, I think it's going to be a success. And he came to me and, uh, and my agent at the time and said, 
I'm going to start this line. This is what we're going to call it. Um, and I, I want Sandra to be, you know, my, my lead off writer for the line because I was still at the time, the only one out there who was doing these stories. I think in 1995, 96, that's when Beverly Jenkins may have come in on the scene, but she was doing historicals mm-hmm. right. and that's where she made her bones and made mm-hmm. her imprint because there were no black ha- historical romances. Mm-hmm. So she just cornered the field and she was a good writer and she was a history buff. So she certainly did her homework, but that was the start of the market really beginning to open up and be accepting to, uh, to black voices. Um, I was, um, I mean, I liked the idea because I knew that there were other writers out there looking to get in. I was a little bit resistant to the idea of a separate imprint Mm. just for African-American readers, because to my thinking, it smacked of segregation again. Um, I had hoped that when the lines came out, you know, first there was Arabesque Pinnacle, and then down the road a little ways came Kamani, Kamani. because, uh, you know, again, uh, Walter had passed away at that point. Um, they had sold um, Pinnacle Arabesque to BET, Black Entertainment Television. Um, then Harlequin had picked it up for a while. And I knew that when Harlequin picked it up, it's because they really saw what it was they were missing in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I had a feeling that what they were going to do was acquire Arabesque, um, work with the current contracts that came in, and then they were going to kill off arabesque and start their own line. And that's what they did. They brought in Kamani. Um, Someone once said to me though, but this is, why didn't they, when you were there, they had you first. Why didn't they see after nine books, (laughs) what you were capable of and use you as the impetus for growing a line or integrating black writers into what Harlequin already had? I can't answer that question. Um, you know, I, I can't answer it because they've never really addressed it. And why should they? It's kind of controversial. Um, but that's the way it, it kind of developed, you know. But after um, the anthology from Harlequin, that's when I was approached by Penguin Putnam and Jennifer Enderlin, if you remember Jennifer Enderlin, who was um, a really hotshot editor and eventually <laughs> became a vice president for the line, she was the one who brought my, bought my, um, gave me my first two book contract, which included The Color of Love. Until this, you've been selling one at a time. Until then, I was selling one book at a time for 10 years. Wow. Even Harlequin never said, we're going to put you on the contract for two or three books because, you know, clearly your stories are selling. And that's a whole nother story. Don't, don't get me started on that. Um, But Jennifer offered me the contract and she bought uh, the color of love. She says, I really like this story. And then mm-hmm. the second book, she says, I want another book for you. And that's when I came up with the idea for significant others about the young African-American woman who was so fair she could pass for, mm-hmm. for white and the complications that gave her life, particularly in the, in the era of, of romance. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, then after those books came out, I got another two book contract from them um, and that became Between Friends, the story of the two girls who had grown up together. Right. And I think the, uh, another book from that was um, um, She's the One, which is about a firefighter. 
And then the, the last two books was Family Affair about an ex-con. Again, I was always trying, you know, what if I had a hero who was an ex-con? Can mm-hmm. I pull that off? Mm-hmm. I was always asking. Swinging myself, for the fences. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Just go for it. I mean, the worst that can happen is that they'll turn you down and, you know, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've had to face that. And then the last book I did, which was also very popular, was called, for that particular line, was called Close Encounters. Again, an interracial story. Um where the hero was again a cop and the heroine was an art teacher. Mm. And um, I, I'll, I can give away some of, I can do a reveal here because, <laughs> you know, the book is really out of print right now. Um, she ends up getting shot by the hero. He what? was on a, he was on a sting, a drug sting with his team. He was a, um, I think he was a Lieutenant in, you know, the police department and they had this elaborate sting sh- set up. And her dog started getting fidgety and she decided at four o'clock in the morning to take the dog out for a walk. And the dog sensed, because dogs do, that there was something going on and he kept pulling her in the direction of what was going on. And before the uh, undercover cops could realize that there was a pedestrian on the scene, action started popping, guns started firing and, and they're after the bad guys and she gets shot. And they didn't know right away who had shot her. You know, there were, everybody was firing guns at everybody else. But in the subsequent investigation, it came out that the hero, Lee, had been the one to shoot her. And he felt enormous guilt. It was clearly an accident. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he really emotionally responded to the fact that he was almost responsible for killing a civilian, you know, and, and a black woman at that. And so that's how they met. You know, wow. he went to the hospital to, to see if she was okay. And, you know, the development. And that's what I do with my stories. I, I don't make them predictable. Mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. think there's much fun in making them predictable. I'm always, always trying to challenge myself. Um, one of the points I was going to make that I got off of when I was talking about the Black stories versus the white stories is I always wrote the stories that they, as they came to me. And because I grew up in a culture that was so diverse and integrated, sometimes the stories came to me with with white characters. The Mm -hmm. Rites of Spring, the very first book that was published, had a white heroine and a white hero. Um, But sometimes they came to me as black characters. You know, then that now you're talking Adam and Eva, Mm -hmm. which not only have black characters, it takes place on a Caribbean island, which is all black. So, um, but I I did have uh, some black readers accuse me of writing white stories because I knew that's how I would get published. And I was actually kind of hurt by that because that wasn't giving me enough credit for just being creative. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, I did get accused of that and I, I didn't even address it because I knew that wasn't true. Sure. I just kept writing the stories, you know, mm-hmm. that came to me and trying to write the best stories that I could. So, but as we're talking about readers, I want to talk about the other kind of readers, the readers who clearly you have met over your career, who have loved your books and seen themselves in your books. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have, there is this sort of very real sense about romance that we are a rich community of readers who value the access that we have to authors and to storytellers. So I wonder if there are any stories that you have from these kind of early days where you realize like how committed and intense, (laughs) sometimes intense, (laughs) the romance community is um, and and how 
I mean, not to not to put too fine a point on it, but how awesome we are. <laughs> Well, one of the things I realize is that romance readers, women romance readers are absolutely devoted to the stories because of what it gives them, what all the stories gives them, which is a sense of what relationships can really be like, that it Mm -hmm. is possible to have a happy union and commit to it and hopefully have your happy ending. (laughs) And um, the fact that it's always, even today, outsells every other genre in publishing says volumes about relationships, the way, you know, boys and girls, men and women come together in relationships. And so when they read books about it, where we make it successful, and we do, we make the story successful, they love that because it gives them hope. It gives them hope that if they don't have such a relationship now, it's absolutely possible that they could have it in the future. Uh, Or if they've had it once, it's possible to have it again if the first one doesn't work. So I think that what we as writers contribute to the culture um, of relationships and, and romance and love is significant. I mean, I've had, I remember back in the, the late 80s when I was really just getting started and people were really beginning to know my name. Um, I once had a teacher said to me, that she used to think of romances as being just, you know, trashy novels. And then she started reading them. And she said, you know, I realized that my girls in school, these are important books for them to read because because the stories were always pretty much middle class and higher. um, And because there was always a happy ending, she said, this is their first introduction to what healthy man-women relationships could be like. You know, the stories could be perceived as being a little bit of a fantasy, but she said, these are pretty much on target. This is what we want. This is what we want in a relationship, a guy who's going to respect you, a guy who's going to make you laugh, who's going to talk to you, who's not going to, you know, play you. Um, And so if they're 14, 15, 16 years old and they're reading these books, this is a pretty good start on what relationships could be like. And I really appreciated her her telling me that. As a matter of fact, um, a podcast that I did last year through DePaul University, I think Sarah probably is aware of it with uh, Dr. Freeman Moody. Um, And the reason why she reached out to me, I was the first person she taped for that library series. And she says, I have been using your books in my sociology classes for years because she teaches it to black students about relationships, Mm -hmm. about black men and women and relationships. And I was so thrilled and honored. I mean, I had no idea that anyone was doing that. So clearly what we do as as writers really has a, a, a significant contribution to the, our development as, as human species who fall in love, you know, break up, fall in love again. But love is always, always what it's about. It's how do we connect to people and care for people. And the romantic part of it between a man and a woman, and of course today it's between a man and a man and a woman and a woman and, you know, <laughs> all kinds. I mean, the stories have really, you know, grown quite a bit in that area. But it's always, isn't it? It's always about love and people just right. wanting to find someone to love them. So um, I'm very proud that I've contributed to that. Um, right, editors, 
came to realize fairly quickly, and I've had several of them say this to me, you're not really a romance writer. Again, because my stories were so much bigger, Mm -hmm. in-depth, complicated, different, very, very different. Um, And someone at Harlequin, an editor I had at Harlequin, um, halfway through my nine years with them, said to me, this was interesting, she said, Harlequin is never going to tell you this. But she says, you were, or she said, you are one of their top 25 selling authors. Hmm. And I didn't know that. Again, one of those things that you learn through the industry. But I just didn't know. I didn't know any better. I didn't know how you found out that kind of information. But an editor (laughs) shared that with me because she said, I I love your stories. She says, and I, she says, I'll tell this to you, which is because Harlequin will never tell you that you are one of their 25 best selling writers. And that was at the time, you know, it didn't, you know, obviously things did change about that, but you know, things like that made me, it was, it it gave me confirmation. It gave me affirmation that I really was on the right track, that I really was writing stories that had worth and that the readers loved and that were selling. I went to a conference once, I don't know if it was RWA or Catherine Falk's book lovers mm, convention, right, which right. was a, a whole different species. A, a real ride. <laughs> oh my God. Talk about partying hard. And, um, I had just done a workshop and I stepped out, you know, of the room into the corridor in the hotel. And it was very busy women going back and forth, changing rooms for the next session. And there was this one woman who was standing off to the side and she just kept staring at me. And she was white, very petite, she wore glasses. I remember exactly what she looks like. And she stepped up through the crowd to me and I smiled at her. I just said, hi. And she says, are you Sandra Kipp? And I said, yes, I am. And she stared at me. She said, I didn't know you were black. (laughs) And I said, okay, (laughs) is that supposed to matter? And she said, I love your stories. And that was a revelation for me as well. Yeah. She didn't know what I looked like, but she liked my stories and she had been reading them. Mm-hmm. What I always wanted to do and what I hoped to do was to always from the beginning appeal to an audience of readers. Mm-hmm. I didn't care if they were black or white and my stories were never deliberately specifically geared towards a target audience of black readers or white readers. Since I wrote both kinds of stories, if they went out there into the universe and found readership, that's what I wanted. Um, I have men readers. I just got an email two weeks ago from this guy in, oh my God, he, oh, he lives in some place <laughs> like Iowa or Indiana. And um, an I state. The middle. <laughs> it was, right, you know, As, it was, oh, look, I'm in Illinois. So, right, so let's okay. not malign the I states, everybody. I, my goodness. My lip- my lips are sealed. No more will be said. And, um, and he contacted me on LinkedIn because I have a LinkedIn account because I was a former librarian. And he said, I just read your, your latest book. And I want to tell you how much I really, really, and he was white, by the way. He says, I really, really enjoyed it. He says, it was so well done. And I believe the characters. He said, good job. Good job. Keep it up. I'm looking for your next book. I mean, I, you know, women don't talk about male <laughs> readers who read their books. No. Right. And I remember going through a period when I would have cops who <laughs> read the book because someone wow. said, you got to read this book. It's about a That's white a cop. cop. And, you know, so wow. I, every now and then I'd get a, an, an email or a letter from a cop who would say to me, 
you got it. You got it good. You got the voice down. You got the <laughs> culture. Wow. I did a lot of research on the cop culture, and I actually became very friendly with a few of them when I still lived in Brooklyn. You know, because they were very good about letting me come in and, and interview mm-hmm. with them whenever I was working on a new story. That, for me as a writer, is the best kind of testimony you can get as to whether or not your books work when it's about people who understand the culture and come to you and say, you, you did it, you, you mm-hmm. got it right. You know, or people that I, I don't even know who take the time to reach out to me and say, this is a really good book. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm looking for the next one. I mean, that is gold, mm-hmm. absolute emotional gold right. to me as a writer. And, you know, when, when I used to begin to feel a little bit um, insecure and wondering if my stories were still relevant, if, if readers were still reading them, something like that would come in to let me know there are readers out there who absolutely mm-hmm. love your work. I still get letters from women who say, I love The Color of Love. I read it six times. I still have it. My book is falling apart. What am I going to do? I need to get a new <laughs> right. copy. You know, that, that's, that's why you do it. You do it for the readers who, who get your voice, mm-hmm. the ones who you manage to reach, um, you don't reach everybody, and I understand that, and that's okay. Um, that, that's not my goal in life is, you know, to, to come up to that kind of, of standard. Um, but the ones who, who write me with such wonderful feeling and sincerity, that's what makes it all worthwhile. And that's where, you know, for me, I've succeeded. Yeah. So... Let's talk about some of I'm we're always very interested in communities of writers and especially right. when you have a long-standing career like yours surely mm-hmm. there are people who have lifted you up along the way and who you turn to who are those people were and they they are probably different now than they were then but I'm we're curious. Um, they are kind of. Um, don't forget that when I came into the industry either as a, a young, you know, adolescent reader or eventually as a writer, I was still only reading books that had you know, by white writers who were writing mm-hmm. white, writing white characters. And as I've already said, Kathleen Woodowis, I absolutely loved her historicals. She didn't write that many, maybe right. six at the most. Mm-hmm. And then there was Georgette Hare, whom I just adored. Um, after that, I discovered um, Patricia Varian. No one talks about Patricia Varian. She was a British writer who wrote stories about different kinds of English history, whether it was Regency or um, some other period. You know, she she also was one who was well-versed in her own history. Um, She eventually came to America um, after she began publishing and she married an American. She lived in the Seattle area. She's been gone now for Mm. probably close to 20 years. But her books... Her stories are priceless. They're probably hard to come by, but I just loved her stories because of the realism of the characters and how consistent they were. Um, when I when I talk about how I actually began to become consistently a writer and wanting to continue to be a writer after <laughs> after those three books, you know, that sat on my shelf for you so many years, right. I think of Janet Daly. Mm. I began reading Janet Daly and I was drawn to her immediately. Her, her stories are fairly simple, but there's always a twist in, in the theme or the setting. Her stories were very, very much 
American story. I mean, about cowboys and yeah. mm-hmm. the Midwest and all of that. But what I also liked about her stories is that they weren't, they weren't founded on fantasy or too much of things happening in the story that to me was a stretch. Mm. These were people who were just everyday people. They could be your neighbors, people you work with, went to school with. And she was so good about developing characters that I always believed her characters, no matter what her story was. And she was really creative in the kind of story she told. And I really admired that. And of course, she was very prolific. She was, you know, at one point, she was Harlequin's top selling writer. Oh, so, yeah. Remember um, those 50 states? Did you read those 50 states? Exactly. Books? Read every one. <laughs> I was obsessed every, with those. Yeah. Yeah. So was I. And I kept, I yeah. wanted to see if she was going to do all 50 states. And she did, which is quite an accomplishment, yeah. really, because yeah. it meant that she either had to know a little bit about or do research about For, yeah. what made, right, what made each state unique. So to me, she was a good writer of the genre for her, for her era. And one year, Harlequin, not Harlequin, RWA had its national conference in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. It was the first time they'd ever gone out of the country for that. But what they were trying to do was to occasionally set the conferences in a part of the country where it made it easy for other people to get there. Mm -hmm. They didn't always have to come from California all the way to New York, or they didn't have to come from, you know, New Mexico all the way to Chicago. And they set it in Hawaii so that people on the West Coast could could come everybody to the had to go sure everyone had to go and, and also, also hawaii. hawaii right i mean <laughs> exactly i have to go to hawaii for work is it pretty yeah you know and then you write it <laughs> so off your taxes exactly. yeah. <laughs> so i was at the conference and um i was headed back to my room and there was a woman waiting at the elevator and as i approached the elevator the doors opened and she walked in and i walked in and i realized it was janet yeah Mm. And while I had her in the elevator, I debated with myself for a few seconds. Should I interrupt her? Should I, you know, introduce myself? And I finally did. I said, I'm, you know, I just want to let you know that how much I love your stories. And I want you to let, to let you know that I began writing and publishing because of your stories. And she just sort of, she I don't know, you know, if she even said anything beyond thank you, but she just like stared at me as if she couldn't, <laughs> re, you know, realize that someone was actually saying that to them. I don't want to read into it too much. More well, than you that. know this very well, but the answer is if you are ever in an elevator with an author and you want to say, you say I love your work, you definitely should say that <laughs> you should because do it. we like Go that for a it. lot. <laughs> Absolutely. So I was always happy that I got a chance to tell her that, particularly when I also felt that she passed away way too young. Um, I I was always happy that I was able to tell her what an inspiration Mm -hmm. her books and her writing was to me and what allowed me to keep going in my voice and not try to write to trends or ideas or other authors or even to readers, just write your own story. Um, Today, when I try to think about um, writers that um, I particularly like or who influence me, of course, Jane Ann Krantz comes to mind because she's just so she's amazing. So terrific, she's yeah. incredible. She really is. And um, I like Jane Ann. She and I go back a long way because she also was a librarian and she likes to tell people <laughs> that. Sandy and I know each other because we were both librarians. <laughs> um, so she was an influence on me. Um, um, there was an, an, another writer. Um, oh, her name was, she doesn't write anymore. And she didn't really write that many books. Her name was, Anita Richmond Bunkley, African-American. 
And it was interesting when she came into the industry, you know, long after I had been writing, her first three books immediately went to hardcover. And she was writing about unusual um, African-American history in the country. I think her first book, which she self-published, was called The Yellow Rose of Texas. And it was all about um, this uh, Black family in Texas who discovered, um, I think it was oil on their property, which was very kind of unusual. Mm -hmm. But then it's what happens with the family and with other people trying to get the land away from them. And, um, and I remember reading this and thinking, this is so well done. And I was, you know, very pleased about seeing this new kind of story out there, Anita Richmond Bunkley. And uh, then she wrote a couple of other books and kind of faded out from, from, from sight. Uh, and Sarah made note of the fact that a lot of writers who started out back in the day, many of them eventually stopped writing, you know, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they had no more stories. Maybe they were one book wonders. Um, maybe life took a turn for them, or maybe they lost interest, who knows? Um, but there were many who, you know, really did very well for a short period of time, and then the candle burned out. I, I started out in the arabesque line with a writer, and it's interesting, she had a pseudonym. Her pseudonym was Ebony Snow. Oh, yeah, African sure. American, I've seen that right? name. Yeah, I know yeah, that name, yeah. yeah. And I, I, it's, it's terrible, but I can't remember her, her real name. <laughs> I just remember <laughs> that she had such a strong pseudonym. Yes, um, perfect. You know, Ebony, right, it was perfect. And she had um, her signature piece was whenever she appeared in public, um, she would dress very elaborately in long period dresses and big, big, big Southern hats with plumes of feathers <laughs> and... You know, she Amazing. was a very, very pretty lady and she was petite, so she could carry it off. So, you know, I do a signing with her and there I am in my little mini skirt and, you know, <laughs> little top and my jewelry. And there is Ebony in this huge hat, you know, and this <laughs> lovely, long, close fitting dress all the way to the floor. And I'm thinking, they're not even going to look at me. <laughs> but it was fun because, again, she was a lovely lady, just very, very charming. I, I liked her very, very much. Didn't love doing programs with her. And we were actually good foils for each other mm -hmm. because our stories were so different. And, you know, we did get a lot of attention, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, when we did <laughs> the programs. Um, Donna Hill. Oh, sure. Um, it, Donna Hill and I go back a long, long way. And, and actually, Donna began writing what they called, um, you know, the romance magazines that used to come out? Um, With the photographs? Like the, yeah. Yeah. Well, she started writing for that, you know, in, in the, the late 70s, early 80s. But they, 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 I don't know if I could consider them romances. It was a magazine. Yeah, they were like, yeah, like fiction, serial. They, they were fiction magazines. Right. You would sort of right. get them and they were the size of like an old life magazine. Exactly. And they exactly. had photo photographs. You know, they had As clearly the staged these elaborate the photo thing. shoots. <laughs> I, I'm going to confess, somebody, Joanna Shoup, who is a wonderful writer, gave me one for Christmas last year that's like a very kind of falcon cresty, this like scandalous family on a vineyard. <laughs> right. And it's magnificent. Right. Anyway, so she wrote, right. Donahill wrote for those first. She wrote for those first. And then, um, oh, yeah. she's fun. She's lovely. And, and, um, and as a matter of fact, I had reached out to her and she was kind enough to, to recognize me at a program recently. 
And she says, well, you know, one of the people who was really there for me when I was trying to break into publishing, she said was Sandra Kitt. You know, mm-hmm. she would really take the time to talk to me. Thanks. I did the same thing for Gwen Foster, who is now, I actually mentored her and she passed away um, about, you know, six or seven, eight years ago. Um, I've mentored Mar- Marcia King Gamble, who is a multi-published writer who lives in uh, Florida, in um, Fort Lauderdale. So I'm, I'm proud of that also, of having mentored a lot of people. Um, I remember when Brenda Jackson used to send me fan mail <laughs> and we would see each other and, you know, she would always say how much she enjoyed my writing. And of course, she's gone on to be, a, you know, stratospheric superstar. But it's nice to know that I made, I've had that connection to so many other writers. Donna is definitely someone that you should talk to. She, she, and she's a lovely person. Um, I think you can learn a lot and get a lot of history from her perspective. There's one who's, I, and I'm sorry for this, I can, that I used to know. She was a Black writer and she wrote for, I think it was a silhouette book that she did, but it was a suspense and mystery. Hmm. And she actually got nominated for an Edgar Award for the best first mystery. And she happened to have been the first Black writer who had been nominated for that. She didn't get it, but the fact that she was nominated was a huge coup for for all of us, all of us writers. Um, I I really apologize for not remembering her um, last name was West. Oh my God, it's on the tip of my tongue. And then in terms of just going back to Harlequin for a moment, they also had another Black writer who came about in the mid to the late 1980s. She was African-American. She was from Maryland or Virginia. She wrote under a pseudonym and she wrote for um, Mysteries and Suspense. And I think she wrote about four or five books for Harlequin. Once again, after that, she just, you know, disappeared. Mm -hmm. Don't know what happened to her. Um, but she was African-American and no one knows who she is because, you know, she, we, we were all under the radar to some extent. I think I was the only one for quite a long time that where everybody in the industry knew who I was because I was the first, you know, mm-hmm. everything that was happening mm-hmm. at that time, I would be the first person at the table, uh, the first person, you know, there I was being interviewed extensively by television and radio um, in, um, magazines, you know, glamour magazine, um, essence, uh, you know, so I was out there. I had a most definite, I had a profile at the time. Did it feel like you were leaving such a mark? Cause it feels like, I mean, when Brenda Jackson and Donna Hill and others are all saying, Oh, well, Sandra Kitt is, was my inspiration. I mean, clearly there is a Sandra Kitt mark. And I didn't know that. I, I really, I, I wasn't aware of that for many, many years because it, it wasn't something that I was consciously set out to do, leave my mark on history, you know. Um, I was just trying to maintain a career in writing and, and made sure that I was visible and that my books were being received and published and, and read. And so it was really a number of years later that, you know, people began to refer to me as a pioneer mm-hmm. and um, the first and all of that. I've gotten several awards from um, Romantic Times for being a pioneer. Mm. Um, and, and, and then it began to hit me when I thought about my history going all the way back to Vivian, that I said, oh, yeah, you were the first to do this and you were the first to do that. <laughs> and, and, and then it began to click that I had 
a substantial footprint mm -hmm. that had taken place in the genre. And I began to be, you know, I was very proud of that um, once it really clicked in my head that I had that kind of a history. Um, I, I was pleased about that for sure. And certainly pleased when, um, you know, someone like Don or, or Gwen, you, you know, they're doing a program that says, I just want to acknowledge Sandra Kitt because when I was first trying to get published, she mentored me and spent a lot of time with me talking about, you know, whatever. And I, it was unexpected. So it was wonderful. It was, it was, it really made me feel very, very good um, to know that, you know, maybe I had an impact. When you think about your, your whole, all the books you've written, what's the one that you, um, that's your favorite or that you hope will outlive you? Well, for sure, Color of Love because it was the first book I'd ever written. And I wrote it from such a pure place. I didn't know anything about writing. I didn't know anything about publishing. I simply had a story. And I was very pleased and proud that when I finished that book at over 100,000 words, it was the story I intended to write. It had the, the trajectory for the characters, the ups and the downs, and the ending that I wanted. And I was just enormously pleased that I had been able to do that. Um, certainly the rest of my career was, um, I was very proud of just be because of what I accomplished and just from being able to stay in the game, you know, for as long as I've been able to. Um, but that one is definitely going to be the one that I'm going to take to my grave. <laughs> the one that I remember. Um, the other one that I'm very proud of was Adam and Eva because it was the first black romance that came out and, um, you know, despite Harlequin's um, hesitancy about bringing the book out, and it did come out, it did very well for them. And then it went on to be published in um, Italy. They did a translation in Italy. So, you know, all of that's important. And at one point I was told, well, this is, you know, they now consider that one of Harlequin's early classics, mm -hmm. um, Adam and Eva, you know, because it was the first black romance that they had published by a black writer. So um, they did recognize that, and, I, and I, I was very pleased about that. Many, many, many years later, I went on to do a spinoff of the story. I took, there was a little girl in Adam and Eva, and um, I grew her, I had her grow up. And so I wrote a book, I think it was 2008, 2009, called Promises in Paradise, which was about little girl who became a doctor. She's an adult now, but it revisits Adam and Eva. Who you know nice. did uh, you know have their happy ending? So I'm very proud of that story. More recently, I'm very proud of the book that came out this past April. I got um, I was writing. I started writing for Source Books, mm -hmm. and um, I had a, a I have a three book contract with them. First book came out in April. Second book will come out next year. I'm starting to write the third one now. But the reason why I'm so proud of it is because I really, <laughs> I did such a good job with the hero and heroine. They, whenever, whenever I have a chance to sit down and read the story again, I'm equally as surprised. I'm thinking, oh, this works. They, they really are <laughs> consistent and they're so cute together. <laughs> and the hero has this great sense of humor. And so I was very happy about that because I had a very long hiatus from writing from about 2010 until 2018 when I got this new contract. 
And of course, the first book didn't come out until 2021, just this past April. And so the fact that I was able to sort of get back in the saddle again, you know, Mm -hmm. almost cold (laughs) and write this book and be very happy with it in the story and the characters was really very gratifying personally to me. So at this point, that's one of my favorites (laughs) because it was like I reinvented myself or something, you know. Sandra, this is fabulous. Thank you so much. (laughs) I mean, what a joy of a conversation. Thank you so much. I'm so happy we get to bring it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm sure I didn't answer all your questions. And believe me, there's a lot of stuff in the, you know, it was a long history. So there are a lot of things, but this was great. Well, you're always welcome to come back. If you come (laughs) up, if you think, I need to tell them that story. Come on again. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I would love to. I would love to. And I'll start reviewing it because I know there's a lot of interesting things that happened during my career. I never told you about Fabio. Oh, wait. uh, No, we're still (laughs) recording. Tell us about Fabio. Tell us about Fabio. (laughs) Well, he was was delightful. He was handsome as anything. Very, very popular as a male uh, cover model for historical novels. However... When I was writing for Harlequin, I did a book called um, The Way Home. And I, it came to me that his face, his persona would be perfect as the cover model for the book. And this was another one of my novels where all the, the main characters <laughs> were white. And I said, but he has long hair. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, right, you know, and, you know, very solemn kind of. And I said, I'm going to do this. Oh, my God. So I'm I, looking I took at the his, cover right now. <laughs> oh, but it's him. It's him. I don't know if you can tell. I can. And it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I, I turned it into when I turned in the book. Um, I had his picture and I turned it into Harlequin to the production company. And I said, this is my hero. This is the model you're going to follow, but you're going to make him contemporary. Uh, So I said, you're going to need to give him a contemporary haircut. Don't make the hair too short. I wanted to kind of brush the collar (laughs) of his shirt. And I said, it's still his beautiful face. And I said, he's going to have on dark glasses because he has a sensitivity to light because of an accident. That happened to him. Was it a bird on a roller coaster? (laughs) (laughs) No. So rude. She's so rude. I'm sorry. I'm 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 with a lot of fun at a party. (laughs) (laughs) And it came, I was very happy because I said, oh my God, it really is him, except he's got short hair. And uh, so I was at another conference. This time it was um, a Romantic Times conference. And I don't know why I keep running into people in the elevator. That's where, that's all, the elevator's where to be in all of these. Well, people are coming and going. Of course, you stand outside one long enough, you're going to run into like six people that you want to say hello to. And um, I was with Catherine, Catherine Falk, who has been amazing in my career from the very beginning. She was on my side, incredibly Mm -hmm. supportive, included me in everything Mm -hmm. that Romantic Times was doing. So Mm -hmm. I give her really big thumbs up, but- I was with her because we were going up to one of the suites where there was a party going to take place. And she says, and this guy was walking ahead of us surrounded by women. And she grabbed his arm and pulled him back. She says, Fabio, you have to come with us. We're going to this really cool party. And I looked at him and I said, 
you're on the cover of my next book. I said, <laughs> it's not a historical, but I want you to know it's your face because I made sure that they did it in the production. Oh and he God. looked at me and he said, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, he didn't speak oh. a lot of English at the time, but he, I, I had my little encounter with Fabio. He was perfectly charming. Very nice guy. And um, and he did come up to the party. Listen, living the dream, a romance novelist who got Fabio on her cover. So. I got Fabio on a cover. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. What a, what a perfect way to end this conversation, honestly. The best. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sandra. We are. Thank you. I mean, this was the best. Listen, she's so cool. <laughs> she's super cool. I know. And also, like, super stylish. You guys couldn't see the video, but at one point, Snazzy. I was like, I this, I want to grow up and be Sandra Kitt, basically. Yeah. I felt a little bad because I really did come to the table dressed for deadlines. So, <laughs> but it's fine. It's, it's fine. It's not about us. Um, Listen. So before we start, actually, oh, here's what I want okay. you to tell us. Because you invited Sandra Kitt to speak at the 19, 2019 RWAs. Yeah. So was that something, like, you really, I feel like, put her on my radar. And maybe that's true for a lot of people. So I think, how did that come to be? Yeah. Uh, gosh, that's a bummer. <laughs> it's a real bummer that yeah. she's on the radar, that right. that that helped to put her on the radar for people because um, I feel like I knew about Sandra Kitt for a long time. Okay. Um, and I don't know if it's because – I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I was reading Harlequin Americans like back in the day and she was writing them and my – you know, I don't know. I don't – I mean it wasn't – they were – those were old, those books, right. those, those first books. Um, but I – I sort of always knew she existed, and I always knew she was an African-American writer who was writing for Harlequins. I didn't know she was first. Okay. Um, that helped. You know, when we—and I, we we should probably name the people who were part of that group. And, you know, right. when when Adriana Herrera and Alexis Daria and Tracy Livesey and LaQuette and Joanna Shoup and Sierra Simone and um, Andy Nisha. Christopher— Sorry? Nisha. Oh. Oh, baby. Sorry. <laughs> no, Eric can maybe stitch this in. And Andy Christopher and Nisha Sharma and I all got together to work on um, that Rita ceremony, which at the time was so important because we really wanted to talk about who built the house, which is, you know, what I've been saying this whole season. Um, I went to Steve Amadown and, and we, I, cause I didn't know a ton about categories right. at the time. Um, and so we put together this list and Sandra was so obviously a f the first. I mean, um, you know, there was Elsie Washington who unfortunately was, we lost and, um, and Sandra, I didn't know this, that, that she just I'd wrote that, that story, first book. Right. And then just didn't want to do it any get anymore. Although God knows, I don't blame her. Like right. this is really very different than journalism. Um, but the, you know, I felt like, and then and then somebody said, you know, she's in New York, mm -hmm. and um, and it was just. I, I took her to lunch. I called her up yeah. and, I, and I said, can I take you to lunch? And she came, we, we went to lunch on the, on the Upper West Side at this like 
place. I can't even remember where what it was called, but it was like we were in a corner. It was very New York. It was like a corner padded booth, <laughs> and it had like a white tablecloth, and it felt very, you know, we were having yeah. a business meeting. And um, and she told me a few stories like the ones that right. she told today, and it just what a glorious person she is. Yeah. You know, full of memories of, you know, people. She was the one who pointed me in the direction of Eva Rutland, who actually we didn't talk about. She didn't talk about today, but Eva Rutland was a black writer of Harlequin historicals. Oh, interesting. Or no, she wrote regencies for Harlequin historical. And I mean, they were regencies with white characters and no one knew that Eva Rutland was a black woman who was also in her almost 80s and legally blind. Wow. Yeah. And was writing these regencies that people really loved. Um, And so, you know, this made me think about, um, you know, just there, there are so many people. There are so many names. So many. And so whenever we talk to somebody like Sandra and others who are on our list. I'm so excited about some of these people. Um, But, and when they say, you know, oh, you should know about this sort of very, this person who very few people have talked about. Um, And it's, she's so great. And I was, I was so glad that she got to talk about Elsie Washington. Yeah, me too. And also about Vivian Stevens, because even though, We've heard bits and pieces from people. I feel like this every, you know, just adds that little bit of information every single time, right? Yeah. About and who she was and what she was trying to do. Yeah. I mean, maybe at some point in the future, we really should put together a, like a super an episode that's just about Vivian Stevens because I feel like. We, I mean, you could, you should all go if you haven't gone and listened to the Vivian Stevens interview at the Black Romance podcast. Yes. You absolutely should. We'll put links in show notes. But um, you start to see a very real picture of this wonderful editor come into play. You know, one of the things that has come up over a few interviews, and I think um, we've never kind of hit it, hit it hard on the outros right is um the power of romantic times yes and And people don't probably don't even really know we talked so we did i will say this i think when we recorded i think maybe when we recorded our vivian stevens episode with steve amadon we mentioned Catherine falk but it's this woman was a a powerhouse, but she was independent of publishing. She had this magazine, right? As far as I know, she was a fan. Yeah. She just loves romance, just like us. And she, um, you know, started this, she started a magazine called Romantic Times that mm-hmm. then became RT, RT Book Reviews. And when I first started, I mean, RT, if you didn't get a good review in RT, you were toast. Yeah. Um, because book buyers all across the country would, use our tea and so they were the taste makers and i remember i started and i was like the dr- my dream was to be on the cover of our tea yeah because it was like a real glossy magazine and it would be like you'd get it and it would have like kathy maxwell on the cover <laughs> you know or, um and so we would and you know it was like superstar time and um i think 
and Catherine was, I, I've met her a couple of times. She was in, uh, at, by the time I met her, she was an older woman. She, to my knowledge, is still alive. Um, and she just loved this. And she had this annual conference, RT, um, that was the antithesis of RWA. RWA was, you know, a bunch of authors, you know, very professional going right. to be professional with each other. And RT was like, wear crazy hats, meet your fun fans, um, you know, spend time with readers, go to parties, like learn to make fascinators with Miranda <laughs> Neville. Like, right. it was a really different kind of thing. Fabio was always there in the early days, apparently. They had uh, cover model contests. It was a scene. Mm-hmm. But Catherine Falk, she keeps coming up as, you know, a really supportive voice who lifted up authors who might not have gotten a publisher lift. Yeah. So interesting. Um, and, you know, I, I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to try and find her email address, I guess. Yeah, I think we she's on our She's on our list. Yeah, now she is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think she's always been on she's our list. She's always been right? on our list. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but gosh, and Sandra Kitt just like dropping Isaac Asimov's name. Oh, he's staying off with Asimov. Sure. And his wife, Neil Grass to Tyson. No, listen, Neil. these these women, they all have great Neil, stories. Neil Tyson DeGrass. I can say words, everybody. I'm a little tired Neil today. DeGrass Tyson. That's right. I said it wrong the first time. You did it. <laughs> Ooh, it's been, yeah, well, and that's, you know, what else I really loved is I, you know, it's funny because today we talk a lot about the librarian connection or no, sorry, the lawyer connection. But yeah. back then, it was like all these really cool authors no. were librarians. Everyone was a librarian. So cool. Yeah. Listen, I'm for it. I am too. I am too. It's amazing. So all of this is to say Sandra Kitt was as cool visually as she is orally. <laughs> and uh, Jen is going to come to New York and we're all going to go out together. Yeah, it's it's going to happen. We'll take pictures and you'll all be jealous because <laughs> it was amazing. And I just She's think, really fun. Again, I, I, Sarah and I get off these calls and just like look at each other like, oh my God, that was amazing. And we hope that you had the same experience this is Fated Mates. Uh, you can find us at fatedmates.net. You can find us on Twitter at Fated Mates. You can find us on Instagram at Fated Mates Pod. Um, or you can find Jen and I just sort of wherever books are being talked about, <laughs> generally. Um, we hope you're reading something fabulous this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, and if you just came to us for this particular Trailblazer episode, please don't miss all the others, which are equally as awesome. Every one of these interviews, every one of these conversations is magnificent. And uh, otherwise, we will see you next week with something who knows? We've got something up our sleeve. Check show notes. And uh, otherwise, have a great week. <laughs>